ECO Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to EcoReport. For WFHB, I'm Don Guerra. And I'm David Lyman. According to the Justice Department, in 2018, the EPA recorded a 30-year low in the number of pollution cases it referred for criminal prosecution. The nonprofit advocacy group Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility, or PEER, issued the Justice Department data on January 15th. PEER's executive director observed, quote, you don't get closer to the core of EPA's mission than enforcing the law. We're reaching levels where the enforcement program is lacking a pulse, unquote. Not since 1988, when Ronald Reagan was president, has the referral rate been so low. Thirty years ago, 151 cases were referred for criminal prosecution. Last year, the number was 166. The number of criminal prosecutions for pollution was 592 in 1998, when Bill Clinton was president. The rate of prosecutions have been declining ever since. The current administration has seen a sharp decline. The president has previously expressed interest in limiting federal environmental regulation. A 2017 UCLA study found that the 163 million dogs and cats in the U.S. eat about a quarter of the country's total meat calories. The livestock grazing and feed production required to produce this amount of meat contributes the same amount of greenhouse gas emissions as 13 million cars. That's why some companies in the U.S. and Germany are producing pet foods that replace meat or fish with ground-up crickets and worms. Edible bugs are a more sustainable source of fats and proteins than conventionally grown animal livestock since they can be raised using organic waste. The Great Barrier Reef is in trouble. Over 50% of it is dead due to bleaching and pollution. Australians are very concerned and are mounting several efforts to restore the reef. One of the latest efforts involves the use of drones to plant heat-resistant corals into the reef. The larvae from the corals that have survived deadly marine heat waves in each of the last three years are being injected into the reef. Peter Harrison, director of the Marine Ecology Research Center at Southern Cross University, says these surviving larvae are likely to be better at handling heat stress. Planting the resilient larvae in the dying reef is intended to help recovery rates in remnant coral populations. On January 17th, Over 12,000 Belgian teenagers marched in Brussels, skipping school to demand climate action. They ended the march with a sit-in on the European Parliament. The students are intending to undertake the protests weekly until the government issues a clear and effective plan to fight climate breakdown. Twelve students are coordinating the events. The students held a successful crowdfunding campaign to pay for a sound system. Belgium schools at first insisted that skipping school for the march was truancy, 
Truancy is a breach of Belgian school policy and law. Later, some schools gave students permission to participate in the protest if they proved they skipped school for the protest. A study in the Pacific Northwest found that trout and salamander populations in streams are drought resistant. The study looked at nine headwater streams in the Pacific Northwest. All of the streams in the study experienced drought in 2015, which had much lower snowfall levels than previous years. The research team examined the condition and number of trout and salamanders in each stream. They found that there were fewer trout during drought conditions. Young trout still did well in affected areas, leading to faster population recovery. Salamander populations didn't decline, but became less healthy. They also recovered quickly. The scientists found that certain stream features help trout populations. In particular, deep pools and stream channels support trout populations during droughts. The scientists say that the fast recoveries of trout and salamanders will make the species more resilient to climate change, which is making droughts more common. For WFHB, I'm David Lyman. And I'm Don Guerra. Support for EcoReport comes from Blooming Foods, Market and Deli, Bloomington's locally grown co-op grocery since 1976, offering products with a focus on local, fair trade, natural and organic, with support for farmers, producers, agencies, and artisans. Blooming Foods Market and Deli on East 3rd near College Mall, West 6th near the Courthouse Square, and Shreve Hall on the Ivy Tech campus. And now, it's time for Get Out and Hike. This is Get Out and Hike, and my name is Jan Walker. And this week, I'm in Till City, which is a southern office of the Hoosier National Forest. And I'll be talking with Nancy Myers, who will tell us about some of the southern trails. Um, I wanted to tell you about one of our most popular trails on the Till City Ranger District of the Hoosier National Forest. It's called Hemlock Cliffs Trail. It's actually between State Route 237 and 37 so it's very easy to access it's signed in all the way and it's a very special place because it's one of the only areas that hemlock trees grow on the national forest Um, there's two box canyons and cliffs and um, there's some unique plants there and um, the hiking trail is only about a mile so it is short if you like longer hikes but it's beautiful because of the rock shelters and the waterfalls Parts of the trail are steep and slippery when wet, so you have to use caution. But it is so beautiful. People come from all over. Whenever I um, patrol on the weekends, the parking lot's always filled with vehicles. Hemlock Cliffs was even a Jeopardy question at one time. It was called, What is a Hemlock Cliffs Trail? And um, it's it's a nice trail to bring... Um, since it is short, you know, to introduce children to as well. But you just have to be careful of the steep sections. But the cliffs are really, really... Very interesting, beautiful, and then when you come in the spring, you'll see the wildflowers and the other plants that grow there. Are the steep sections um, safe outside of being, they're steep, but they're not like a drop-off oh, no. or a cliff? No, we okay. have um, stairs, and one, one of the cliffs has rock stairs, but you can still hang on to the sides. Okay. So, yeah, it's, okay. it's safe, and we have them well marked. There's white diamonds. Hiking trails are white diamonds. And the multiple-use trails are blue diamonds. Okay. And what does the uh, multiple-use mean? That's horse, hike, and bike. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And uh, Hemlock Cliffs is hiking only. Okay. So, okay. 
you won't have any horse traffic or bike traffic. So if you're a lot of folks just like to have the trail to themselves and not have to share it with other use, you know, user groups. So that one's a good one for that. And what is the uh, website address? It is www.fs.usda.gov as in gov forward slash Hoosier, H-O-O-S-I-E-R. And all the information's on there. We have divided up into user categories like bike, hike, multiple use. So they're very easy to find and you can download the map. Thank you very much. The Indiana Department of Natural Resources, Department of Forestry, is responsible for the state's forests. Logging in state's forests has increased significantly since budgetary reforms in 2005 and 2006 changed the DNR's funding mechanism. Now the state agency supplements its budget by selling timber and access to state forests to logging companies. But according to a new report released earlier this month by the Indiana Forest Alliance, those states bring in lower returns than timber sales on private land. In today's feature report, WFHB News Director Wes Martin speaks with Indiana Forest Alliance Conservation Director Dr. Ray Schnapp about the report and logging in public lands. What we ended up doing is talking kind of in generalities about the lack of transparency in the process because we feel like we should be able to figure out how much it costs to manage our state forest. But what we found was that the State Forest Procedures Manual says that certain costs should be excluded. So they're just kind of systematically excluding costs associated with management of invasive species and anything that's not like directly related to the sale is, is excluded. So that includes a lot of staff time and writing up the resource management guides for different tracks and, and that sort of thing. So... Uh, and some other excluded costs include things like road building. Um, we know that building roads is expensive, but um, we're really unable to pin down a figure as far as how much they're spending to build logging roads into uh, our state forest to provide access for those sales. And then the other kind of major finding is that our state forest timber is being sold for prices that are far less than privately owned timber. Private timber sales typically are categorized according to high, medium, and low quality. And what we found was that the state forest timber is going for prices that are lower than the lowest 
quality private sales. So that's kind of startling, especially considering that our taxpayer dollars have been used to manage these forests for many years now, but we still aren't getting a very good price for it. There are a a number of recommendations that come out of this report, and I I was wondering if you could take me through some of these. One of those, obviously, as you had mentioned, would be a greater transparency on behalf of the state DNR Division of Forestry when it comes to things like timber sales, or you had mentioned like road building uh, and building logging roads. What are some of the other findings or recommendations that are coming out of this report? Well, kind of along the lines of transparency is we'd like to see better cost tracking systems so that there was not the systematic exclusion of of some of the costs and or if we are going to continue to exclude them, at least we could track them and know what they what those costs are. Uh, to really know how much it costs us to manage our state forests in this way where timber sales are kind of the priority. And we think that our state forests have more value for recreational purposes and for just for wilderness, but nobody is, is looking at that yet. And then we'd like to be able to obtain better prices for the timber that is harvested from our state forests so that we could harvest less and still fund the agency, but harvest less from state forest land. If I can interrupt you, Dr. Schnapp, you had sure. you had brought up a, a very interesting point there by saying we could harvest less if we got a better price, and that would help fund the agency. And something that I think a lot of listeners don't necessarily know is that the DNR's Division of Forestry is partially funded by things like timber sales of state-owned land. Right. In about 2005, 2008, we had a big restructuring of state government and the property tax funding was restructured. So it dried up a revenue stream that was going to the state forestry fund that was eliminated during that restructuring. So the agency had to look elsewhere for funding and they began to ramp up timber sales at that time. You're saying they began to sell more of those timber sales in an attempt to kind of match uh, that funding that was restructured or taken away from that agency? That's right. And that, I think, would have been during the Daniels administration. Does that sound? That's right. Exactly. Yes. Another thing that you had mentioned was that on average, the timber that is sold from private land will go for a significant amount more than timber that is harvested on public land, in this case, state forests. Can you explain why that discrepancy or what in your findings would indicate that discrepancy exists? Well, the Association of Consulting Foresters, they track timber sale prices that where a consulting forester was involved. So it's not all the sales in the state, but it is a pretty representative selection of larger timber sales, and they categorize them according to high, medium, and low quality. So the statistics are there. The data exists. And we just looked at that data in comparison with the data from the Division of Forestry annual report, and we found that our state forest timber sales are uh, bringing in really low prices compared to those private sales. And one reason that the Division of Forestry has given is to they say that state forest timber is low quality. It's just really low quality, but that 
doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us because they've been managing our state forest for all these years. So why is it low quality then? And there are other factors that might impact the price that we get for state forest timber. Um, one of them would be just the ease of access because state forests tend to be kind of uh, remote. But then if we as taxpayers are paying for logging roads to be built in our state forests, we're kind of subsidizing the sale of our timber. So those excluded costs would actually make the, the picture look worse uh, than, it, than it does. And it looks kind of bleak already, like we're not getting a good price. And there are some things we could do to get better prices for our timber. It's rather hard to judge the quality of the timber while it's standing. So some companies will cut the timber and evaluate the logs uh, after they're cut to see, you know, if there are like knots and whether the tree is hollow and that sort of thing. And you can get a much better price for your timber if you if you do it that way, but um, that is not the way we're doing it. Dr. Schnapp, there are several other recommendations on this report, and uh, if you could just briefly touch on some of these. Uh, one that you had been mentioning before I had interrupted you was reducing the timber harvest levels. Um, what exactly does that mean? Well, we at the Indiana Forest Alliance, we've been advocating to set aside some areas and harvest less timber from our state forests. Uh, for a long time, we've been we've been saying that um, and asking that some areas be allowed to become old growth and be truly set aside as wilderness, so that when hikers go into a wilderness area, they don't experience a clear cut. Um, those kinds of things. So just um, sort of balancing out the various uses of our state forest so there's not so much emphasis on timber sales and more emphasis on the value of recreational use in in some areas. Dr. Schnapp, there, I, I'm wondering how widespread is this issue or are uh, timber harvests throughout the state? I mean, is this something that is happening in every single one of Indiana's 92 counties or is this only where there's a state forest or... What can you tell us about the prevalence of state sales of timber? Indiana actually has about 5 million acres of forested land, and by far most of that is privately owned. We have a thriving timber industry, and state forests only represent about 3% of our forested land, so that's a very small contribution to the overall industry. Um, but that 3% of our forested land is, is publicly owned. It's our state forest, you know. And, um, and so we have been advocating for protection of these areas with more emphasis on recreational use because uh, we don't have that many uh, large forests in Indiana, most of our forests are small, and especially in the northern part of the state, many of them are less than 25-acre parcels, and a lot of those are along waterways that may be flood sometimes. Then most of our forested land and most of our state forests are in the southern part of the state. So I think that, especially in the northern part of the state, it's easy for people to forget that we, we do own these large parcels of state forest land. 
and they're a really important asset that we should protect, both for wilderness recreation and also for the wildlife that, that um, live there. Are you looking for a way to take action on environmental issues? EcoReport is seeking volunteer reporters to contribute short headline news stories as well as feature interviews. We provide all the technical training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. Give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. Coming up next, In Nature. This is In Nature. I'm Kaylin Huffman Brower. This segment of In Nature is about the endangered species, the copper belly water snake. The copper belly water snake is a non venomous snake that grows two to four feet in length. It has a solid dark, usually black back, with a bright orange red belly. They need a patchwork of shallow wetlands or floodplain wetlands surrounded by forest uplands. They move from one wetland to another. Frogs and tadpoles are their main prey. The population of the copperbelly water snake is listed as threatened under the Endangered Species Act. Threatened means likely to become endangered in the foreseeable future. Identifying, protecting, and restoring endangered and threatened species is a primary objective of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Wetlands used by the copperbelly water snake have been altered by people for agriculture, road, housing, and other developments. Because the copperbelly water snake needs many wetlands interspersed among uplands over a large area, it's especially vulnerable to habitat fragmentation. They're also collected for the pet trade. It is, however, illegal to collect the copperbelly water snake. They're also vulnerable as they move from one site to another to predators and across roads, mowed areas, and farmlands. You've been listening to In Nature.
This week in our listening area, Lake Monroe is offering a self-guided driving tour to view eagles and other birds on Saturday, January 26th from 1 to 3 p.m. The tour will allow you to see the birds through spotting scopes. Register in advance by calling 812-837-9546. Check-in will be at the Town Activity Center. If you are interested in learning more about bats, Plan to attend the Batty for Bats program at Spring Mill State Park. It's on Saturday, January 26th at 11 a.m. Learn about Indiana's bats, the role they play in our environment, and the steps being taken to help them survive in a changing world. Hilltop Gardens at IU will be hosting a class on Wednesday, January 30th from 5.30 to 7.30 p.m. Learn how to plant a three-season garden before spring, including how to plant multiple crops in the same bed to maximize your harvest. For more information and to register, contact Sarah Mullen at 812-349-3704 before January 29th. Take a winter exploration hike at Monroe Lake on Wednesday, January 30th from 1.30 to 3.30 p.m. This hike will be an off-trail hike through lesser-known areas of Monroe Lake. There is no set path. Register by January 27th on the Indiana DNR website and be prepared for rugged terrain and the lack of toilet facilities. On Saturday, February 2nd, from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., Brown County State Park will be hosting their third annual winter dog hike. You will have the opportunity to explore the woods with your dog while participating in a scavenger hunt and possibly win a prize. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Reporters brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Linda Green, Norm Holy, and Andrew Brown. This week's In Nature was written by Juliana Daly. Jan Walker produced Get Out and Hike, Andrew Brown, Kaylin Huffman Brower, Todd Wicks, Jan Walker, and Wes Martin edited the script. Wes Martin produced and edited our feature. Kirsten Payton engineered today's show. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Jan Walker is our producer. Executive producer is Wes Martin. Tune in on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. and Fridays at 5 p.m. for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news. You can also access news, feature audio, in nature, and get out and hike episodes at any time 
at wfhb.org. For WFHB, I'm David Lyman. And I'm Don Guerra. And this is EcoReport. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana, bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.